From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. We do this every week. We're coming to you via Zoom as we have been since March. An upside of our Zoom gatherings is that everybody's here. Almost every week, everybody's there. By everybody, I mean Audie Weiner, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, Eric Bradlow, Professor of Statistics and Marketing, and this is Cade Massey, Practice Professor in Operations, Information, and Decisions. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We're going to open with our usual first quarter on COVID-19. It is the context for the sports world and the context for our life. Lots of numbers to make sense of. I, uh, I think I understand things better because of having this conversation with you guys every week over the last nine months. I'm always curious to hear your take on what's going on in coronavirus. feels like cha- things are changing you know, on multiple fronts right now. And so I'm very interested in what has caught your eye. I'm gonna, but I'm going to tee one up. I want to know what's the deal with this mutation? What's the deal with this new strain people are talking about? I know that it's shown up with some prevalence in, the, in Europe, and now it's showing up in the U.S., and most folks think, it's probably quite a, quite a bit in the community, even though we haven't seen that many cases yet. What is, how worried should we be about this thing? How big a deal is this thing? Who can explain this to us? Well, I'm going to jump in here with the, with the fear monger. I hate to do that. I usually, I'm, I'm usually the least fear mongering, um, but I think this is worthy of our attention. This is, a, I think, a very rapidly spreading version of the virus. I think the UK has seen extraordinary increase in the rates in which it's transmitted. The rest of Europe, and I hear some reports from Israel. It's really going. Ex- they're going on full lockdown. I know about yeah. In the UK, the UK is going on full lockdown too. And the yeah. rates. I mean, you look at the New York Times charts for the UK and Israel, and they are they're not really, looking good. And and the, the really what this means is a lot of things that we do now, kind of casually, we go to the supermarket. Um, I think we're gonna. Those are going to be much riskier activities in the United States, whether that's in two weeks uh, or a month. That I think that's coming. I think that we're going to be seeing extremely rapid um, pick uh, uh, transmissibility of this virus in ways that we've never seen before because it's much faster. It's not more dangerous, so you're not going to die of it. Or it's, I think, in fact, it might even be less dangerous. But that's a t- totally conjecture. No evidence for that, by the way. Just just uh, conjecture. Just the way it should work if it's more transmissible. Um, but I think this is a race against time because we want to get as many people vaccinated before this new ver- this new variant is everywhere. And and all the all the current evidence does suggest that the vaccine will work works yeah. against this new variant as well. Well, that, so that, that's that's a little bit unknown. That's the obvious next question: is like, what does it mean to be a new variant? If the it, it's 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 more contagious, it might be less dangerous, but it's still susceptible to the vaccine. So, I mean, it's it, the most important thing is that the vaccine would still work, right? The, but the key difference, it sounds like, is just a different level of contagiousness. I've seen 60% more contagious. Is that? I think it's way higher. You think it's even higher than that? I think it's even higher. On, I think on in what the basis? sense that uh, some data coming out of Israel, they, they found um, a, a cluster of people who had it and spread it to you know many, many multiples. What we were seeing before, un, unchecked, was about two to three people doubling that, at least doubling that. Um, now, are you Obviously, taking us back to? Are you taking us back to R knots? We haven't talked about R knots. R knots. We haven't talked now. Uh, you know, uh, most people. So, in other words, it all depends on what people's behaviors are. So, it's really hard to factor that in. So, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I think it's more than sixty percent. Um, you know, head to head under identical conditions, I, I think it's more than sixty percent. 
So okay. I want to take the inverse problem, but it's it's def it's only related to the topic we're discussing, which was a lot of people are now starting to say that why has the spread been so high in certain areas? And in some sense, the reason I call this the inverse problem is that given the transmission rate of the original variant and what people know about the degree of mobility, you can't explain why Los Angeles, for example, has been having such a high rate. And now people are saying, wait a second, if you consider it as a mixture distribution, so you have the original variant, which is what we've been talking on Martin Moneyball about for eight, nine months, and now you mix in this second variant, it's the most logical explanation for the data. But you haven't yet seen it and tested it to that extent. But it's a great way to use kind of mathematics to say the exceedance under this model cannot rash can be easily rationalized except with a mixture distribution of a much more uh, contagious. Trait. So, so you're sort of claiming that LA is perhaps already it, it, the new variant is already there is in correct. a significant level. Absolutely. We just aren't aren't looking for it yet. Exactly, Shane. That's exactly what I've seen. It's, but by the way, this is a standard mathematical argument, by the way, that, you know, look, you guys are all the same age as me, but you remember the original, what we call empirical Bayes analysis in statistics is not the empirical Bayes that most people think about it, is that you have a marginal distribution. In other words, what fraction of people are getting the virus in the population? You have a belief about a spreading process, and then you have a prior. The standard empirical Bayes is you estimate the prior, you estimate the mixing distribution, not just the parameters of it, which is what we do now. So this was, I, this was an analysis I read that was straight, can we estimate this mixing proportion and the likelihood that this variant is already out there given what, you know, in some sense, the exceedance from the regular data? Now, there might be lots of other explanations, but they're trying to rule them out. So hold on, before, before, we, before we go on, let's make sure we understand this a little bit because we're all trying to jump in with questions right now. So Eric's basically saying, look, we've got, we've got this known version. Now we've got this mutation. Mutation is much more contagious. Maybe the reason we see some spots in the U.S. really blow up and other spots not, we've had a hard time explaining that. Maybe that's because there's a mixture of the new and the, and the old, and the new is leading. Some places have more new than others. And, one of the, and so one first is just a descriptive question. How do we know what's new and what's not? You have to sequence the thing, right? You have to do some kind of testing on the thing. And, and the U.S., of course, because we don't do anything you know, at cutting edge, isn't doing much sequencing, right? So we don't know how much of this is my impression. We don't know how much of this stuff we actually have. I'm just trying to understand this first. Before and, we and, 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 and also, I'll just interject that it seems at least fairly convolved with, you know, I mean, Adi sort of said, like, if this variant is, you know, if, we, if we're doing the same behavior, this variant looks twice mm -hmm. as kind of, can we, what, but, you know, the last month of holiday seasons in the UK and in the U, we're not yeah. doing the same behavior. No, exactly. Right? And so it. I feel yeah. like the last few weeks is a very tough time to measure just based on kind of the outcome, which is number of cases, a new variant going through the population because we are, we haven't been behaving the same as we right. were well, two Adi months ago. Adi wants to go next, but that's not what I said. But let's let Adi yeah. go, and then I'll rebut Yeah, no, I'm said. just going to try to put on a, a biologist hat for a moment, and I'm sure I'm going to wear it wrong, so I apologize ahead of time. But you, there's more than one way they know the variant because apparently the way the PCR test works is that they're testing for different, different sections of the DNA or the MRRA. And when... When things, uh, when you get a bunch of positives and a bunch of negatives, then they go, "What is this? This is not the thing we've been looking for. It's it's digging. It's uh, it's lighting up for some of the 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 uh, markers, but right. it's missing others." And then they go, "Aha! This must be the new variant." So there's ways to check detect the variant 
just with the standard procedures. You don't need to have new new uh, screenings or sequencing in place to, to notice it. So that's why I'm kind of wondering, I don't, I don't really think the explanation for LA's explosion is in the new variant because I think they would have discovered it already. It's really not that hard to find. Well, okay. there, was an, there was an interesting article in the Times that talked about basically these PCR testing. We're not extracting the, what the information we should be um, or storing the information we should be. So one of the things that they do with PCR is you run these cycles, which takes in the very, very small, minute amounts of the virus and amplifies it. And you do it, it's all exponential. So each time you run it, it increases it by some factor. And if you do that six, 10, 20 times, the minute amounts now become very measurable. And this is how they detect the virus in the in the in their nasal passages very, very, very early. If you look at how many cycles it takes to get a lot of virus, that's a that directly tells you how much virus is in the bloodstream or how right. much is in, and that data has never been used to figure out, um, for example, how seriously ill you're going to get. We've okay, just been dropping the ball on data. That's, that's a, that, Well, let's come back to that one. I thought that was a really interesting article. It's about viral mm -hmm. load. And so let's let's hold that for one second because Eric's still on about the mixture models. Eric's going to defend well, his- The only thing I was going to say is, first of all, I agree with Adi, but I just want to say an article just came out this last week from the head of the Department of Public Health of Los Angeles saying they have been doing testing uh, of the uh, for the new strain. They're doing additional gene sequencing and that they do believe that it's been there already. Let me just, ah. that side, but let me just mm -hmm. get back from a mathematical side. What I said was, and maybe, again, I said a lot, so maybe it got lost, was that conditional on the additional mobility and other data that they've been measuring, because people holidays getting together with people, that still cannot rationalize the growth rates that they're seeing in certain areas. And so you could have, now there's lots of reasons that could be. One is your baseline model for the original strain could be wrong. Two, um, you could be measuring things. It could be a measurement error problem. This is what we have to deal with all the time in statistics, which is it could be that the model's not right. It could be that the data going into it's not right, or it could be all of those things are right and we have an exceedance and now we're looking for an explanation. And all mathematicians were saying is one possible explanation, given we know the existence of this other strain is a mixture distribution. So that's a, I love having another model on the table and God knows we need more models because we, we really don't know what's going on. But my swing at this would have been, Eric, this discussion we've had, it's been a couple of months now, but this discussion we've had about how heterogeneous these, the spread is. And we've got some people who either because of their behavior or the situations they're in just end up spreading it to so many more people. This is highly heterogeneous. It's like the, this, the old network problem where some people just no, a whole lot more people than other people do. The distribution of those affected is not normal. And we don't, we don't usually capture that in our models correctly. And so we have a very bad intuition for what, how much variance we should observe in the world. And so that, that's, it's kind of a chance explanation for why we see these, these such different experiences in different geographies. But, you know, chance is often the most parsimonious explanation. Um, all right, so what... Adi, you mentioned this thing about the New York Times article about uh, load. And this is something, I mean, going back to the early days of the virus, I remember not even knowing. It's like, I thought you kind of either had it or you didn't. And then it turns out that there was this concept of viral load. And these poor frontline workers who were exposed to this stuff at a higher rate and more continuously than the rest of us were getting sicker, not just because of an increased chance of exposure, but because of heavier load. At least that's how it worked in theory. 
And this article came out and said, look, we're not even capturing this information. Like, we don't even know, right? Is this, is this the nature of it, Adi? And can you say anything more? Yeah, about I it? mean, so the, the question is, what are you going to do with the information once you have it? And so if you work, if you ask yourself, if we knew the viral load predicts outcomes, and if we knew early what your viral load was, which is arguably can be done when you do that first round of PCR testing, which was I was describing before, if it only takes six cycles to get you up to the sort of amount that you need, instead of 14, you have way more virus in your system than right. someone, who, someone who needs many. So the question right. is, what do you do with that information? Okay. And that's, I think, where, where you need to concentrate because one of the things that we have noticed is that the, the death rates are going down. And, uh, and, but we're not 100% sure what causes it. We know that some of the, some of the sickest people are saved by dextromethasone, the steroid. We know that that works, but it's not a huge, it's not a, a savior by any measure. 25%, I think maybe uh, uh, improvement in death rates. So certainly for the sickest people, it, it's, it's been, a, been a great, great result. But what can you give to someone who is just diagnosed, who doesn't have bad symptoms yet, that can prevent them from either being hospitalized or sent to, or, or dying? And that's where the viral load comes in. And I do think we do have treatments that are incredibly underused right now because, because it's hard to know who's gonna benefit. And those are the monoclonal antibodies, which are sitting there on the shelves in the hospitals. They need to be, they need to be put in using um, intravenous drug uh, um, admission over two hours in a center. And in what's West Virginia, is- they substitute for the vaccine sometimes. Did you hear about that? No, I didn't know that. one West Virginia clinic gave out that instead of the vaccine. <laughs> to like 40 people so, this is a big it's a big world i think we're talking about you're a big world but the bottom line is imagine you get so i this is a question i ask myself what if i turn positive i'm not in a i'm not in a risk group that's serious but i'm not yet as young as shane jensen or anything <laughs> so i'm sitting here going going what would i do and what would you guys do if you showed up positive i would love to know what my viral load was because if it were really high that might send me off to you know the hospital to get monoclonal antibody treatments, even though I'm not in the allowable group. I'm I'm not 65 or older, uh, right. whatever it is. And if I showed up, you know, it's and I don't have symptoms, it's a light load. Maybe I just you know sleep it off. Um, well, yeah, I, I was going to like, know that information. And it would be nice to know how much the viral load kind of pre like la- pre legs your actual symptoms because I mean the 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 put the, the 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 counter answer would be well you don't need to know your vital load because your symptoms kind of are going yeah, to right. be probably a pretty good measure of how much well, how your imagine, body is reacting to the virus I would imagine uh, but if, along with the viral load it would be helpful to know how long you've had it because a viral load yeah, of x yeah. at day t may be very different than a viral load of x at day t plus ten or yeah. something. And so that, that would be good to know. Look, we can have all kinds of, well, yeah, sure. I'd love my time series of viral load. That'd be fantastic. And let me just say, by the way, if we had the type of information Adi suggested in the, in the inexpensive home testing that many people have hoped, that's that, I mean, it's, it's a dream now. That's not where the effort is going now, but that could have been possible. Well, and I mean, we have studies. We, we do have a subset of people that we measure every day. They're, they're, they're healthy people. And they play, so they're not like the the general population, but we do have at least some time series data on people. It's just not a very, very representative yeah. one, professional athlete. So I, I have to tell you, I've done a major update on a cr- crucial probability. Before this new strain, I gave myself a very remote chance of getting COVID at this point before I get vaccinated. Like what? Um, one in a hundred. Uh, one in five over what period of time? Uh, uh, from Ever? going on out, you know, oh, now, until he gets vaccinated. So uh, maybe still vaccination. Um, yeah. I thought that you know, and things were. I'm re-upping that, and by enormously because two things: the vaccine rollout is extremely slow. 
and it doesn't look like it's going to speed up anytime soon, which mean, means that I don't think I'm getting vaccinated until maybe late spring at the earliest. Oh, um, I'll, summer. Take the, I'll take the over, but keep going. Really? Late spring. Wow. And given the fact that I think this, this new variant is going to eventually come to a neighborhood near us, and I think it's I think my chance of getting it is now 25 percent. Oh, much, much higher than it ever was. Um, I have to tell you, I mean, I'm seeing tons of people that I know in Israel come down sick um, and just as all in the last days. And um, they haven't done anything that much different. They're actually in a lockdown over there. How is okay. it so? I just so think but like real- to eat like the, the, I, again, I mean, I, I maybe I'm beating a dead horse in terms of this kind of behavioral change around the holidays, because certainly I feel like we sort of experienced it here in North America. And certainly I think the UK as well in in Israel, there wasn't like, you know, December, like the kind of last few weeks haven't been a kind of time of you think in, increased gathering or anything like it that. Is. that. It was Hanukkah, also be so, contributing. Yeah. Sure. But it's been uh, but it's just been like a. it's in the last Hanukkah's over now three weeks. It's just okay. been it's been taken off. Let me yeah. ask taken you, off. Let me ask everybody from a distributional perspective, statistical distribution, not distribution of the vaccine, distributional perspective. Should we assume, Adi, related to yours, that the if you think about the distribution of viral load of the people that have it in the population, should we assume it's lower than before? Let me say the rationale for why it would be lower. Number one, the people that got it um, who have passed away already. Um, Mm -hmm. Those people probably had higher viral loads. Um, The people who were more likely to transmit it to other people and potentially get it early, they maybe had higher higher viral loads. So would it be unreasonable to expect that if I could measure the entire distribution of viral loads of positive people, that it would be shifting more towards the left than it has been over time? Yeah. That's, this is conditional on only within positive people. You're not talking about like the overall viral load of the virus in like across humanity or whatever, because clearly that's increasing with the number of cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm referring yeah, yeah. I think you mean on average. This is exactly. This yeah, is I mean on average. I'm talking about the distribution, the shape of the distribution, yeah. not the height of the distribution, which obviously yeah. is scaled by the number of yeah. people. So if load is related to fatality, then my understanding is this is the way viruses are known to evolve, that in general, they become more transmissible and less fatal. And that's because of just selection, essentially. The more fatal ones kill their host at a rate that reduces the degree to which they're transmitted. So it's just over time, it kind of goes in that direction. Now, I don't know, I, that doesn't speak to the mutations. And it seems like the mutation has gone that way. Well, let me ask a question to Adi, because he talked about this before. You've talked about age being the number one determinant, really, of risk. Matter of fact, you know, it's it's massive between someone, let's say, oh, 75 yeah. and 25. It could be 100 to 1, 500 to 1, whatever the oh, number. Oh, it's ridiculous. So my question to you becomes, um, when do we get to the point where the, let's call it the age curve for coronavirus starts to look like the age curve for the flu. Because let me. the reason I asked that question is, let's imagine it was identical. Then you probably wouldn't worry. You'd be like, you know, I'm not really worried about dying from the regular flu. I'm not saying I'm not going to get it, but I'm not worried about dying from it. Matter of fact, I'm not even really that worried about being hospitalized. Will, will it ever get to a point, I'm just building on my other question, where the distribution moves so far to the left that within some time that it looks like the flu distribution. Okay, well, I can actually sort of answer that question. Um, certainly at the bottom edge of the distribution. 
it has always looked like the flu for Correct. 18 and under. And you've said and that in fact, for nine months now. You've said yeah. it for a long well, like, time. And, even for, and for the for youngest 18, age. For 18 and younger, just to be precise, for 18, 18 and younger. 18 and younger. And for 14 and younger, it's even it's it's less dangerous than the flu. The flu actually knocks off, sadly, quite a chunk of very, of very small babies every year. Yeah, I think um, you've said the number like yeah. three to one in the wrong direction. Like in the wrong direction. Is three times more. Right. right. So the real issue, uh, so in the 18 to 25, it's pretty comfortable. It starts to become much worse uh, relative to the flu in that in that mid range. So twenty five to sixty five, it's a good. And I think going on up, it's probably ten times worse than the flu in terms of fatality rates. But by the way, Eric, I think you should probably worry more about the flu. <laughs> you you know you're not old, but I mean bad things happen to people, and it's a pretty low rate. But I mean everyone. Yeah. No, I just think that if, if if you told it. I'm saying it's, I'm not saying it's true now, but if you told most people yeah, yeah. I, no, I the quality curve looked like the flu, most people would no. be like, you know. Yeah, and you and Eric, you could imagine. I'm I love the question because you could imagine people saying, "Look, you're telling me it's less dangerous. I, the odds, you know, if I'm under sixty or sixty-five, the odds weren't terrible anyway, and now it's less dangerous. Oh, and it's much more pervasive. I mean, I'm just gonna roll with it. I'm just gonna roll the dice here. I'm not gonna because I'm just gonna get it. Maybe this. Maybe I just give up at this point. Well, that's the problem. I mean, that's the problem is, is that it really hasn't been that prevalent as much as it's uh, it, it, it much. The flu is way more prevalent in the wintertime. Than, OK, so than is that true? Because 20 percent of Americans have had this thing by now. Coronavirus. Yeah, about about 50 percent of the Americans get the flu. Is every that true? Year. Yearly? Well, then we get vaccinated now. So the vaccine cuts it down by a half. There's about 50 million cases of the flu a year. Okay. I looked this one up. 50 okay. million. Wow. But well, we haven't been here a year yet, so we're going to catch up and hit about the same yeah. number. Again. Yeah, That's and so yeah, twenty percent yeah. of three hundred and twenty-five million is sixty-five million, right? But that, by the way, that's an estimate. So the so number of actual there. positive tests. No, the yeah, actual yeah, yeah. number of positive tests is what about, about fifteen million? million now? No, no, sorry, 20, right. 20, 20, 21 million. Let me make the argument in the other way. So we don't yet know how much less consequential this strain is. That's Let's right. assume it's less, but it's not that much less. The way I have felt about this thing, I feel like I'm pretty risk tolerant in general in life, but with this stuff, it's felt like I don't want that incremental whatever, half a percent, 1% of something really bad happening. And now the situation, at least in many corners of the country, is that hospitals are so over demanded that you really don't want to end up there. Even if you're, you know, in normal circumstances, you might be fine, but in these circumstances, your care is going to be impaired. Effective. You really want to avoid having any kind of trouble right now, especially. The more people our age that get it, that even if we don't die, the more we will spread it to people of other ages who might. So yeah. even though, I mean, us getting it, our demographic and population getting it will lead to more deaths. Let's be clear. Right. Oh, absolutely. Right, right. Okay. But, you so know, the- I want to, I want to know like, okay, what, if we took this really seriously, if we just say, okay, Adi has opened my eyes in the last 30 minutes, I'm going to do something different because these are the moments you want to take advantage of you. We're cruising along. We're not complacent, but we have kind of become accustomed to the situation we're in. I just had lunch with a couple of buddies. I sat outside, everybody sat outside at a distance, but we do this on a regular basis now. And we don't worry mm-hmm. about it too much. I walked inside with a mask on to order my food. Now, I don't, this, it sounds like, and I kind of feel like I've got it figured out, man. I've, I mean, I, I know the three things I need to do and I'm going to be okay. But if the world has changed, then those behaviors need to change. If I'm still that serious about not getting it, partly for me, Eric, but also maybe because I don't want to pass it on to my in-laws, then 
what do I need to do differently? And, and if you wait until everybody around you knows that we've got this mutation, you're probably going to have exposed yourself unnecessarily a lot, right? Because it's already here. Okay, so all that says, we probably ought to be changing our behaviors right now. And we're talking about the basic things like Adi. I mean, look, Adi said grocery stores, you know, we used to remember March, you worried the hell about how you when and how and how you conducted yourself and cleaning up after you went to the grocery store. How much do you worry about that now? A whole lot less. Yep. Not at all. I think, I think so a couple of good things we have working in our favor. First of all, Philly has, we've, we've, uh, we're down. The the numbers are, are going down here in Philly which is of course good, but better if the new strain, when it reaches here, we'll be able to see it and get maybe some indication of that it's here. Um, so that might give us a little bit of fair warning. Um, when we do see things tick up again in Philly, which I think is inevitable, that's the time, a couple of basic things. Uh, instead of going to the store three times a week, once a week, um, instead of just using that, you know, that simple little mask you use, I happen to have a stash of pretty solid ones you know, N95s. I don't like wearing them. You can't breathe in them, frankly. Um, but if I need to get to the store, maybe it's time to bring those out again. Um, wash your hands as, as aggressively as we did in the beginning, coming home and away from things. Maybe not, maybe no more outdoor dining. Until Take a the, break until for a couple of weeks from outdoor dining. Um, yeah. But I think, I think we'll have a lead in. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll have a lead in and see it coming. Well, what I, one of the things I'm saying, I like everything you said, except I would push you to be more cautious on seeing the lead in coming. I mean, what happens typically, the most dangerous things that happen to us are those that we think the world hasn't changed and we're yeah. adapted to a current state and the world has in fact changed. Well, yeah. it's good. It's okay for me. Cause I'm not doing any of those things you guys have been talking about. <laughs> Where do you get your food, Eric? Uh, Someone goes to the store. When, when we do go out to stores, which is not often, um, I'm Mr. N95 and I'll even put a second mask on over it. All right. I didn't breathe for that long. Well, well, I thought Eric was getting a little more smug by the minute down there as we were talking, <laughs> we were making our confessions. <laughs> <laughs> all right well listen guys why don't we wrap that uh discussion for the week we'll come back to it next week of course but um thank you for all of that and uh be curious to see what evolves over the next seven days all right guys that's been the first quarter of wharton moneyball we still have three quarters to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back Welcome back to Work Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. The whole crew is here. Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. You guys can jump in and away. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We comment periodically about the sports world. And we'd love to hear from you. Questions, comments, suggestions, whatever you got. You can also email us. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We consider it a mailbag. Periodically dip in there and pull out a question from you guys. We get lots of good ones. Appreciate it. Those of you here who we hear from, appreciate Always good to hear from you. Guys, second quarter here. Want to get your reactions to week 17 in the NFL. The playoff field finally set. Some uh, interesting goings on in week 17. Anything in particular jump out to you? Um, I think the one team that I don't think anybody wants to face right now, there's lots of teams. Uh, nobody wants ever to play Kansas City, but right after them, I don't think anybody wants to play the Buffalo Bills right now because that team looks like it's firing on all cylinders. And, uh, you know, I think even see the quotes from guys that are all pro on the Bills or said, we thought Josh Allen might be good, but not that good. Yeah. <laughs> and he looks 
fantastic. I mean, he yeah. looks – the Bills right now are going to be an extraordinarily difficult out for whoever has to play them. And I'm even including – I mean, yeah, Kansas City, of course, is going to be favored over them. But I would, I would favor right now the way they're playing. I would favor Buffalo over any other AFC team. Well, I'll take it one step further. Rufus ran our model without priors earlier today just to get a sense of it. And he says that without priors, the Bills look better than the Chiefs uh, in wow. our numbers. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's not to say that's right because we have priors in there for a reason. But I do think this is an interesting year to consider the value of priors. And some, I, I, I don't have it sorted out. When we talk college football, probably in third quarter, I'll have some more specific questions for you. But let, let me just ask. I mean, given how unusual this year has been, do you think you, we should have relative to last year? Would you want more or less weight on your priors in, in your model? I think Ooh, more just because <laughs> I mean, I, I think more just because I think sort of the game to game variation, you, you know, the, the variation this season, I think, has been because of random COVID, you know, issues and stuff like that has has increased my decreased my confidence in the actual data. Yeah, that said, okay. I mean, the Buffalo, the Buffalo, the specifically the kind of Buffalo observation, we don't just have this season. I mean, one of the reasons I think everybody's buying into Buffalo is it's just kind of a continued trajectory from what they were doing last year, too. You know, I mean, jo you know, if Josh Allen had come out of absolutely nowhere this season and it, his level has improved further, but at least it's a it's a further improvement on already a trajectory that they had coming into this season. So, so I think we're a little bit more confident in that because of that. Right. So Shane, right. Let, me, let me argue the other side and not not because yeah. I don't see your side, but let's argue both sides from a statistical yes. perspective. Yeah. So let's imagine we believe that the, the data right now is noisy because of COVID and everything happening, as you said. But let's imagine that it's coming from an entirely different distribution. And so using the prior actually is yeah. going to bias me yeah. as opposed to help me make predictions. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, you're right. If that, you know, in statistical language, if both, if there was, a, if there was, was a single un, uh, strength parameter for each team that was constant from the past and constant right now, then yes, I would absolutely want to use strong priors with messy data. But what if those priors are biasing things? And so you could easily argue the other direction. So let me real quickly, Adi, because he said something that's so on top of the way I've been thinking about it, just so much better and clearer than I've been thinking about it. Because a nice example here is Ohio State. And we're not going to talk fully about college yet. But Ohio State, coming into the season, everyone took consensus top three program in the country. They didn't start until October. They had a game lost to COVID. They looked messy. And five games on, six games on, people had big questions about them. Now, at the risk of overreacting to their semifinal against Clemson, where they looked world-beating, one could argue that we – Alabama in this world? Well, yes. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I was just yeah, saying, we're going to get there. I had to say it. One could one could tell a story that we left our priors too quickly about Ohio State, and to map it onto what you're saying, I think college football is a place where there there's institutional persistence at a much higher level than in the NFL. That that you're unlikely to change. You just said, is the data coming from a new process? That is less likely in college football, especially with the place with the same Yeah, I mean, coach, there's, there's, less, there's less structural things in there to try and encourage parity in the college game. 
That, right. That's true. Year to year. Like, 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 you know, that's year right. to year, for example. Yeah. The draft, there's no draft. The, the way the NFL it. draft work in, in the, in, in the college football world would be this top teams, just get all of them. Okay. So what, what I'm trying to reconcile is my desire to use more priors in college yeah. football and less priors in NFL. Yeah. And it feels irrational. Eric's given me an argument for it at the very least. And I think it's interesting to, to hold on to, to, to uh, mold. Yeah. All right. So let me let me put it in somewhat uh, the language of statistics and variance. So the prior uh, the priors are useful when they're when they're when they don't have huge variance because they give you information. Right. So and that they're very valuable in college because the variance on a team like Ohio, Clemson, those top programs is pretty small. So we don't even really need the season. We kind of know unless there's some, you know, obviously breakage in the prior, but we kind of know what to expect from a whole bunch of programs and almost every level. And so the season is just much less interesting in that respect, except for when the top teams play each other. Well, in professional football, in professional football, here's the problem, problem with, say, Buffalo, for example, is that if you didn't use the prior, your variance estimate, your standard deviation, your standard error on a, on a team like Buffalo would be huge. And I would bet there would be very difficult to actually statistically discern the difference between, like, the top five teams right now. You might some one is going to be the top, and one because the data because game by game data are so noisy. Yeah, I don't think Buffalo has been a particularly high variance team among all of them this season. No, he just uses examples NFL as an example. No, and I I, and I and I certainly, but but, you know, I mean, again, just coming back to the college for a second. I mean, Audie pointed out one reason why you'd put more on your prior because you have stronger prior. You you know more about these college programs, and they're Mm -hmm. more constant year to year than in the NFL. But also the within a college season the actual data is less valuable there's only like you know it you know alabama plays like maybe three games of consequence a year even in non-covid times that's right that's right you know the point that i'm making is like so if you go to massey peabody there's the ranking all right and so i guess new orleans is probably still number one or where where are they right now in them of course Uh, 2020 baby of course it's new orleans for massey peabody we're all right so so 10 point whatever but what you don't notice which you because you don't produce them maybe you have them you don't show them is your standard error on those. Yeah. So yeah. I want to know how far do I have to go from New Orleans at the top before I get to a team that I'm, say, 95% certain, if you will, but, using frequentist yeah, language, yeah, yeah. Um, that that team is worse. And if they got to play an infinite number of games, um, this team would win X number, whatever it is. How far do you have to go down there? Yeah. And it I would guess that if you didn't have... Problems, it better be below the Buccaneers or there's no right. validity well, to the system yeah, at all. Right. So my point is, is that if you didn't use the priors, you probably have to go way down before great you can point. discern. Yeah, I'd I make a prediction that if you only use, this is a great exercise to do. If you only use the in-sample data with no priors, you might have to go down to <laughs> half the teams in the NFL. Yep. There's 95% confidence that the Saints would beat them. I think y'all are, it's 16 games in, I think y'all are, I mean, look, I'm all about noisy data. I think you might be overstating the noisiness of the data. I think after this many games, you actually, we're looking at play-by-play, remember? Okay, let me ask uh, you a question. There are 14 teams in the playoffs. There's none of those 14 teams you would give the Saints a 95% chance of beating. Well, that's, but that's a 10 I, point. I, I don't think, no, we like, use 95% because that's yeah. kind of history. That's not the right, I mean, that's not what I'm football's too stochastic for that. You'd never give yeah, yeah, any yeah, yeah. team that's a point. team. No, that's I'm not point. talking I'm about that. My, that's my point, Shane. I'm, I'm not talking about the probability of winning in a game. I'm talking about the probability that the posterior, if you will, using Bayesian language, the posterior uncertainty that this team is the better team, no. fundamentally the better team. Oh. 
Okay. So, so my question is, given, is that you don't mean in a given. I don't mean in a given game because only the Jets you can rule out with a ninety-five percent, or you know that because because football has so much uncertainty. 13, 13 point, 13 and a half points of of, uh, of variance, uh, standard standard deviation. What I'm asking is if they got to play infinite number of games, or you got some an oracle came and showed you the magic number that tells you your 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 rank. Um, how far do you have to go down from the top before you can say, I'm um, say 95% certain this team is better than that? Team. Another way, Adi, maybe it's not a way you want it framed, but let me frame it another way, which is let's say the Saints were to play an average. Well, the Saints this week, I think, or if I got it wrong, I apologize. Let's say they're playing the Bears. They're Bears. They get right. the Bears. So let's say they have a 75% chance to win that game, 80%, whatever the number is by the implied odds. Okay. How many games would they have to play the Bears before you made a statement? that there's a 95% chance they're even going to win more games than the Bears in that, uh, in that sequence. And my guess is it's not a tiny number of games that they would have to play the Bears to do so. So I'm saying is I think there's more noisiness. There's a lot of noisiness in this. Let me, let me, let me, let me ask you, I'll, I'll give you very, I'll give you, I'll ask, let me ask you a question I can answer, which is let's just take that, that game, Saints and Bears, and you were right on for the implied probability of their winning. According to Massey Peabody, it's 80% okay. with priors. But I happen to know, because Rufus happened to just run this, what the implied probability is without priors. What do you think it is? It's going to drop, because that's what we're saying here, that we're less sure. How much is it mm-hmm. going to drop? Let me just, before I answer that, let me just comment. It didn't have to drop. Just remember. The question is, where are the Saints and the Bears compared to your priors? That's my only point also about non-stationarity. If it didn't have to drop. No, it doesn't have to. Because if, you're, if, if, if you don't use priors. I'm going to say it drops worse. quite a bit because yeah. I would guess any system yeah. would be pretty uncertain about where the Bears even are at as a team. Yeah. They've been, they're, they're an example of a team that has been heavily non-stationary through the season. Well, I'll give you a number. I'll give you an actual hold, number. Hold on, hold, 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 hold. I, this at the risk of being too academic here, I don't. I mean, you you would expect it to drop, right? I mean, more no. uncertainty is going to lead your prediction to be regressive. No, 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 no. But regress to what? If the if the if the same. If you were completely uncertain about both of them, it would regress to 0. 0.5. Oh, if you were, but I'm not saying that. I'm saying I know you're not, but it's going to eventually go to 0. 0.5. I know, but suppose your prior for the Saints was at 0. 0.9. At you know their strength was at 11, or suppose it had been at 13 on the Massey Peabody scale. And the Bears have been at minus five on the Massey Peabody scale. Depending on where your priors yeah. are centered, you would give a different answer to that. Yeah. Okay, but pri- priors don't come that strong. But so that's that's. But I but I know that, and you don't know that. So that's okay. Now I understand what you're saying perfectly. Well, I'll give you the answer. The answer is seventy five percent. So it doesn't drop as much, according mm-hmm. to Massey Peabody, anyway. Our estimate of the New Orleans Saints and everybody else, based purely on in in season observations, is not that much regressed versus the Irish with priors. The chance of the Saints beating the Bears drops from 80 to 75. Right. So I assume using that, I mean, I could do it in my head or try to do it in my head. I was going to think about what's there for the effective number of games that must be in the Massey Peabody prior that lowers me from 80% to 75%. I'd go. I'd love to see you walk through this. It's a great way to think about it. What? Because we talked about this last time. This is one way to think about priors is what's the effective sample size of your priors fictitious so you've played 16 games so let's imagine uh, this is probably the wrong math but you know i'm thinking you know uh standard deviation is one over root n so we're kind of one quarter one six you know six square root of 16 is four so n is 16 games so if that number were uh 20 
Then you've got one over the square root, which is about one over 4.3. That seems too big. So I'm going to guess the priors are worth, by this point in the season, like two games. That seems low to me. That's, I, I, I'm not, I wasn't able to follow you through that so quickly. But my sense in college, my sense is that the priors are still damn near half the weight at the end of the season. Just as y'all were talking through, priors matter more. In yeah. professional, it's definitely going to be more than two games because that's that, that suggests the, the the weight is eight to one. I think the weight is more like three or four to one. Okay. Well, the, yeah, the I reason mean, why you know, my baseball in my baseball one and baseball is different fundamentally than yeah. football, but my baseball one's like around like you know our calculation last week was like a third or so of the season is when yeah. I kind of feel like the, the in a third of the season the priors are kind of at equal and to to the the actual in season data. Equal to this. So I can tell you what, what uh, Tom Tango uses in his baseball forecasting system. He uses 30 games of uh, a pad okay. as his prior. Uh, so and he does so a, just, he, just to be, just to be clear, what we're saying is 30 games into the season, then his estimate of a team's ability is half prior, half, half prior, half, half actual. Well, yep. that would suggest then that it, by the end of the season, it's like a five to one ratio. And Kate yeah. was saying that right. appropriately that, and by the way, he did something, you did something very clever, which is you just look at the ratio. Eight to eight to one is probably too much. That's why my two sounds too low, but four to one sounds more plausible yeah. than eight to but, one. By the way, and it's easy to do for baseball. He's using the, what's called the beta binomial, which is the essentially a, a standard prior that you use for, for, for a lot of sports. And basically what he's saying is if you look at the distribution of the final scores, you want to find how many, what this you want to equate the standard deviation and the prior to what you see in the in the at the end of the season in terms of after you of your estimates your properly shrunken estimates and that's what he gets i would guess for for the reason why for college it's so the priors are so big is uh, piggybacking on shane's point there's so few games that matter that's right right so the season is so short <laughs> but i the, but the prior I, has I, to be so th that's true and I, but I've kind of known that and thought about that. I hadn't thought about it the way you thought about it, which is we have stronger priors in, in most about most college teams, especially the ones that have more importance than we do in the NFL. We see so much regression year to year in the NFL. I mean, mm -hmm. a, a record is worth like 30 percent or something mm -hmm. in just one season. I mean, you regress significantly, like two thirds back to the mean. In college, we don't see that, especially in the tails. I mean, there's just so yeah. much more persistence. So I really, the combination of those two things leads to much stronger priors in, in, pro, in pro football. All right, guys, this, this has been interesting to me and to you. <laughs> I'm entirely sure it's been interesting to our listeners, but I think we worked through some things. I mean, look, that framework we're talking about is something that we work with all the time and we prescribe all the time in sports and outside of sports. And I think just talking it through, the more we can do that, the more facile we can become. Let's remember, this all came from my discussion of the fact that your answer to your question is, I thought the Bills were very impressive and I don't see anybody wanting to play the Bills. And then, of course, you then said, which is great, that if we're only using the in-sample data, the Bills would be maybe the number one team in football. That's right. And that's what led to this. Let's just remind right. everybody yeah. what did lead. That's right. We had a tangible uh, stepping off point. Well, let's go back to tangible. We ran some brackets just kind of in the spirit of final four for the NFL. We all filled out brackets for how we see the next 13 games going. And so a little competition, a little competition. Yeah. We won't run through everything right now, but it gives us, we haven't done this in a while. I feel like the last brackets we did were like, game of Thrones death pool or something it was it was fun to get, to get the game going again um uh, so anything jump out to you about these data let's just use them at the very least to walk through this weekend's games the weekend's games i mean you, you can't not love it right it's a smorgasbord of nfl football we got three games we got a triple header 
both Saturday and Sunday. We don't, that's just not something we get. And, um, and there are a lot of interesting matches here as well. So walking through our picks. So we got our, us four and, and Maddie D are in here. And the first game is Saturday noon, of course. That's New Orleans hosting Chicago. That's the two versus the seven in the NFC. And we're consensus. The line there is eight and a half. We pick these brackets just straight up just because there's we, we, a little premium on upsets. But just what, create your bracket. Let's see how we do. And everybody goes consensus Saints here. What is interesting about these games, guys? I haven't believed in the Bears all year. No, but I mean, you again, they've been a weird team. I mean, they look terrible. I mean, they certainly did not spend most of the year not looking like a playoff team. But if you watch them the last four weeks or so, they've looked downright competent. And I mean, not not in a way that I think any of us would have, you know, I mean, I'm not surprised that this is one we're all consistently betting New Orleans on. But like, you know, I mean, you know, they they, they, they didn't exactly back into the playoffs. That said. I think they're I mean, a class lower than New Orleans. How, what was the Green Bay Bears outcome? I mean, I know the, I know Green Bay won this last Green Bay week. won, but I mean Chicago it was a competitive game. Okay. It was and Trubisky, you know, I mean Trubisky. Yeah. I think the analysis on Trubisky's looked a lot better, but he hasn't really played much deep many defenses and so there's still the 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 jury is still out. Mm-hmm. Eric, you're trying to jump in here. Yeah, just two quick things, one about that game and then one more generally about the making of the picks. Um I think New Orleans defense wins them that game. I'm not as confident that New Orleans offense is going to put a 40 spot on the Bears in this game. Yeah. I think I think uh, Trubisky's not good enough yet. Maybe he will be someday. I doubt it. But maybe he'll be uh, – I don't think the Bears offense is good enough to score enough points against the New Orleans defense. It's that side okay. of the ball. But my question to you guys was, when you looked at this set of picks you made, did you start to think I have to pick a certain number of upsets because upsets always happen? And if, even if I think every game would go chalk, I just would never pick it anyway because if you look at the distribution of upsets, it's rarely zero. Right. So I, um, the other consideration is just from a game theoretic perspective, if you're trying to win a pool, you generally need to dial up the variance. And so that's going to suggest, you know, going against what you think everyone else is going to do and maybe, you know, rolling the dice on a few upset picks. Audi is like, well, uh, true of big pools may not be true of a five-person pool. I mean, you, you might want to dial out the variance a little bit, but not necessarily in a pool this size. Bigger the pool, the more you need to do it. Audi, it sounds like you didn't feel the need to do that at all. No, I don't think so. I mean, you do it a little bit, obviously, because what happens is, first of all, this you, you have an upset as being anyone who's the, the weaker t- ranked team wins. Um, that could be almost nothing, right? So how is it going to be decided? What, what if New Orleans plays uh, Kansas City? One of them is, an, is a dog, right? <laughs> By definition. Yeah. So I think this is all just going to get, with a tiny pool like ours, it's just going to get randomized out. Okay. Um, that's, I, think, I think that's fair, and it's going to make me regret some of my picks. No, and I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I bet I put, filled up my bracket with my heart. It just turned out to involve a lot of investment in the variance and a lot hey, of look, there's, there's utility comes in a lot of different forms. Yeah, here. So that's right. Heart, no, I mean, honestly, my bracket, if it happens, it's going to be very enjoyable. Let's go to the second game. Seattle hosting the Rams. That's the three versus the six in the NFC. This one, I was surprised at all the action on the Rams, but guys, I'm not even sure if golf is going to play. I, I picked this not knowing he wasn't going to play but I didn't change it when I learned that he was something like doubtful. I, I mean, if I watched, play, they're not going to win. I watched a lot of the Seattle, uh, I think it was 49er game this week. I think that's who they played. And uh, I thought Seattle's offense looked absolutely terrible. 
And I think the Rams have a better defense than the Niners do. So that's why I picked the Rams in the game. So Shane, you're on Seattle. Yeah, I mean the Rams a bit. I, I it was it was a lot of golf basically. I, uncertainty about golf starting or not. That was most okay. of what I, I I gave the edge to Seattle. Well, I love me some Russell Wilson, maybe especially playoff Russell Wilson, and it could yeah. and he could get it going. They do on, have but, to turn it around very quickly, as Eric sort of was alluding to. If they right. Don't make the run. All right, nighttime game on Saturday is Tampa Bay um, traveling, traveling to Washington because that's the wild card going to that powerhouse NFC champion, NFC East champion, Washington football team. The line here is seven and a half to Tampa Bay. Consensus pick among the five of us that the Bucks are going to do it. Eric, you're still a believer on your t- in your team, not just this week. Uh, but I'm a believer against the Washington football team. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's uh, easy. Alex Smith, what a job this guy has done, but he can't move. And when the Bucs put the pressure on them, they're not scoring enough points yeah. to beat the Bucs. There's no chance. Not no All chance. Right. I, I, I like the Bucs heavy. All right. Early game uh, on Sunday, Buffalo hosting Indianapolis. That's the two hosting the seven in the AFC. The line here is six and a half to the Bills. And we're consensus Bills. This is anything. Let's just keep on going through this one. Everyone loves the Bills. Everyone wants to bet on the Bills. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to watch the Bills. Let's go to the afternoon game on Sunday, which is one of the most interesting Pittsburgh hosting Cleveland without a coach. Now, yeah, Stefanski comes down with COVID. Can you believe it? I mean, I don't. I, I guess these guys aren't in perfect control of what they're exposed to, but it's just extraordinary. Now, Stefanski, uh, you know, those guys are big on that coach. I, I, I don't know how they're limited. Can he be cloistered somewhere? No, he has to be all the way out. It's just. I, th- I think. I think he has to be on the sideline, or he have no influence, right? I think those are the kind of the rules. He can, yeah, like I don't like think he can he call can, in. Like, call in to the offensive nope. coordinator who calls in plays. Nope. Okay, so we're we're split on this with three taking Cleveland, two taking Pittsburgh. That was maybe before the Stefanski news. This is another one of those that I would have changed if I could have once I got that news. Um, who, what's the case for Cleveland getting this done as the dog? By the way, congrats to Cleveland. First time yeah. in 18 years to make the playoffs. That's a big well, deal. Let me just say, the reason I would have picked Cleveland, I didn't, was you guys want two points for the upset. This gets back to Adi's point. Cleveland's the underdog, but they're not a massive underdog. And certainly if it's a two-to-one yeah. payout ratio, I'm taking Cleveland. But I and took Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh anyway. certainly. Pittsburgh has been an uncertain team. Picking Pittsburgh here gave me pause because, you know, they've been a very up-and-down, inconsistent sure. team themselves. But for I did sure. pick Pittsburgh. Uh, most the last time we saw them playing to win, they looked really strong, like they might have flipped mm-hmm. a switch. But I, I don't generally believe in switch flipping in the NFL. You mean, of course, the second half of the game that they flipped the switch. That, the first half right. of that game, you would have bet on the Jets beating them. That's why I meant flip switch. It's like literally something happened at halftime during that game, but I kind of doubt they fixed all their problems. All right, finally, the weekend ends. Late game on Sunday with one of probably the probably the most interesting game. Oh, by the way, let me say that 3-6 deal. Those 3-6 matchups are interesting because they can flip the brackets. The NFL is going to reseed, and the reseeding really depends on what happens with the three sixes because if the favorite wins, things go through as expected. But quickly, if- as a Buccaneers fan, I'm not sure who I want to win the Rams-Seahawks game because one case the Bucs played the Saints again with for the eighth for the eighth time this year, and it hasn't gone well. The other time they played the Packers, and that game did go well. Yeah, Either way, I it mean, doesn't I- matter. Tom Brady's going to destroy him. Don't worry <laughs> about it, man. I'm not All right, so – I think that that's going to be fun to see whether any of those sixes can pull off the upset and, and, and flip those brackets. Last game, though, a rematch of the divisional game last year where Baltimore rolled into the playoffs, number one seed, and got smashed by Tennessee, Derrick Henry and the Tennessee Titans. We split on this a little bit. Actually, all the hosts go with Baltimore. Matty D, blasphemous son of a bitch that he is, went with the Titans. The Ravens are favored by four and a half. 
what's the argument for the Ravens? Are they going to get it done? They've lost the last two against the Titans. They've looked like world beaters in the last, like, you know, few games, though. Again, we were talking about the, you, you know, I, I mean, I'm I not necessarily against the strongest of teams to finish off the season, but they, they, they're looking a lot more like that number one seed from last year than they, you know, have been for most of the season. Well, that, that, and the big question is whether they can do that against top tier competition because yeah. they have looked like that against middle tier competition, low tier competition, not against top tier. And when they get hit in the mouth, when they fall behind, are they going to panic? Or are they going to stay with what they do? That's, it's a be really fantastic, that's a fantastic game to watch. Yeah. And I mean, their path basically goes through Tennessee and then Kansas city. So, I mean, they're going to have a lot of kind of, well, you know, these are unless, two teams that have owned them recently. So Shane, unless that six beats the three, unless Cleveland pulls off the upset in which they'll go to, in which they'll go to Buffalo, which could be interesting. All right, guys, uh, we've, we're going to follow that bracket as we go. We all came up with different winners in the Super Bowl adds a little flavor to the next few weeks. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Second half, kicking off the second half here, third quarter, open segment. And we're going to dive into college football and pick up maybe, maybe a few other sports along the way. We'll end the show in the fourth quarter, our usual interview segment. We're going to talk to Ben Baldwin, football analyst, fantastic follow on Twitter and on the athletic writing, always interesting things. Um, Ben Baldwin is joining us at the bottom of the hour. Guys, uh, we've just talked about professional football for a little bit, obviously getting walking into the playoff season. There's one game left. There's actually a few games left. New Mexico State, I think, is playing about three or four spring games, which is interesting. But in terms of what people are watching, we're down to one game in college football. After a, a, a fun bowl season and a big weekend this past weekend with the playoffs, um, some other bowls ended up with the Orange Bowl, A&M getting past North Carolina. Um, what in college football caught your eye and how are you feeling about the matchup we have next Monday night? I mean, I think the the obvious thing is, I I mean, you know, as we kind of alluded, Ohio State absolutely blew me away with their performance against Clemson. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of, um, I went into that kind of semi being like, you know, thinking Clemson probably had the best chance to beat Alabama, but not necessarily a great chance to beat Alabama. And I came out of it thinking that this might, I mean, it's not exactly an even matchup for the championship, but I'm more confident in Alabama not necessarily walking away with it than I was two weeks ago. Okay. Okay. I, I watched a lot of the game. And I think the other thing you have to think about is, I mean, I look, I think everybody would still take Trevor Lawrence, but Justin Fields looked pretty mm-hmm. darn good. And he can really throw the deep ball. Um, I, I think he made smart decisions and smart throws throughout the game. I think the Jets are going to have a real decision in pick number yeah. two, whether they stay with Sam Darnold or they're going to drop Justin Fields or you know, they, their draft stock may have just gone up because now they've got a more valuable number two pick. Yeah. And let me tell you, if he does turn out to beat Alabama in the national championship game and plays as well as he played in the semifinal game, then their number two pick may get a lot more valuable. <laughs> well, one, um, of the, one, of the most, one of the most reliable dynamics in sports is what's going to happen on quarterbacks between January and April every year. I mean, Basically, everybody, any viable quarterback and viable stretching it pretty, pretty wide 
just slides up the draft into the top 10. And it's probably the case that a top 10 guy slides up to the draft in the top five. And what Fields did the other night was ensure that he is in the conversation against a guy that a few years ago, everyone would have said was consensus. Before and, we talk about that other game, where, where does your guy, just because I don't want to forget, where does your guy Ellinger, Ellinger fall? Where does, you know, he's ranked the 10th best quarterback by, you know, the experts, et cetera. Yeah. Is he like a fourth round pick, fifth round pick somewhere in there? You know, the, the number I heard on the telecast, of the night, I haven't, I haven't dug into it. The number I heard on the telecast of the night was 12th or something like that. And, you know, I think you're pushing the outer limit of the number of quarterbacks that are drafted in the year. And so I think is it second half, you know, what we used to say is the third day, third day is a Saturday draft pick. Um, he hasn't shown, he's kind of um, digressed as a, as a passer in his time. Maybe, maybe he peaked in his sophomore year and he's just, I think he's played hurt a lot. And it's not gonna, he's not going to look good on tape for um, this, this senior year. He's going to have to show that in some way, he's going to have to show that that was health. Now he's a gutty, heart-filled guy and a, and a leader and all that stuff. It's a little Tebow-esque in that way. Um, people generally thought he's a better passer than Tebow, but he hasn't shown that that much this year. And so I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried about what he's going to do. Um, a lot Can of, I make a the, the insiders yeah. at Texas think he's been handicapped by the system and they kind of threw the wrong system at him. But Adi. I want to throw out a question. We're talking about Fields' uh, uh, draft stock skyrocketing, which of course is great for the Jets, in ter- particularly in terms of trade value. And I'm a Jets fan. I'm I'm in favor. On the other hand, how do you take one game and make such a revision on your estimate of someone? I don't yeah. think he played well all year. What what is this? Is is one game uh, magic? What, I mean, I okay. thought the whole thing. Good. That's a great question, Adi. So there was a group of us talking about Pryor's last half hour. Were you in on that one? Yeah, I was. Justin Fields is a great example of we probably walked away from Pryor's too much this season because of two things. Two things have happened. One, when he came out in high school, people thought he was one of the best prospects they had ever seen. I mean, it wasn't just top of the year. It was one of the best we've had come through here. So that's where he started. And that information, as you know, from your work on, on recruiting rankings, that information is yeah. diagnostic. That information matters when it comes to draft four or five years later. The second mm-hmm. thing is he had a remarkable season in 2019 with Ohio State. I mean, remarkable. It's something like, I don't know, 42 touchdowns and three interceptions or some crazy thing like that for a very good team. And do we think he changed that quickly? Do we think that a bad performance against Northwestern yeah. means that that's not the guy we saw in Elite 11. That's not the guy we saw in 2019. I think, we, I think this is an example of priors. We, this is why we need priors. And this is why we, we need to be careful about not overreacting to a single game. The overreaction to a single game, Adi, was the Northwestern Big Ten Championship. It wasn't the – I mean, they may be overreacting now to one game, but I think it's, this is much more in line with our expectations. And, and, I mean, again, we, we, we do overreact more to college, particular college football games because, as we were discussing before, very few of them actually are – matchups that have a lot of signal in them right so you know we we do want to put extra weight on how he does against Clemson you know because that you know that kind of game is a matchup that is more evenly balanced than most of the ones that Ohio State plays also Mm -hmm. by the way if you want to see how the narrative would have changed imagine he doesn't throw that last pick at the end of the Clemson game last year and he beats Trevor Lawrence and Clemson one pass could have changed he's the guy that slayed the king he slayed Trevor Lawrence so I'm just saying they lost yeah. 29-23 to Clemson. This yeah. year they flamed him. You could argue he's at least performed as well as Trevor Lawrence in those two games. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, such a great point, Eric. I mean, the the the, the single plays 
that would change history and therefore the way we talk about i mean eli manning the guy doesn't catch we, do, the we don't have to go there we, i'm we sorry Shane, of other plays we could talk about. who were they playing again when the giant <laughs> guy caught it like that on his helmet russell who, wilson who, doesn't throw that ball that gets picked off by the by the uh, Butler. yeah we can talk about that one instead yeah. it's true <laughs> so um um, what else on the on the college football side of things? Well, let me just say that the, on the, the quarterback thing, the somebody just noted that this this quarterback draft a few years ago with Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, um, um, Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield was number one that year. Somebody noted that you could probably rank them their ultimate performance so far, which is not final, but so far. The best explanation of that is the quality of the team and the support they landed with. It's not the quality of the guy, the raw material coming out of college. It was the quality of the staff and the system and the support that he landed with. And so they're saying Buffalo was a great place for Josh Allen. Lamar Jackson was a great place for Baltimore. Turns out Cardinals and then being traded to Miami was not a good thing for Josh Rosen. Imagine that or the Jets may not have been that great a developmental place for, I mean, this is, I think, a really interesting argument. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it it's a little bit related to our priors conversation because these guys, I mean, we're not seeing them in pure form. We're seeing them as a product of that plus a bunch of people and, and an organization. And, and yeah, I mean, and, and our really top players typically go to organizations that aren't great, you know, yeah, because, because they're, the, they're, they're, the they're the worst teams or whatever. So it's, it's interesting to kind of see like, you know, like, I, I don't know what you guys think of, you know, the rumors that Urban Myers might end up uh, in Jacksonville to coach Trevor Lawrence, you know, it, like, like, I, I kind of feel like an organization that gets a, you know, a generational or at least a generationally hyped talent like that is there's an extra onus to kind of completely overhaul your organization so that, you know, Oh, that's interesting. You so know, that you, you, you and, and, and probably a little bit and, and, and a little bit extra kind of like leverage to do it. Right. You know, because, again, Urban Meyer probably wouldn't consider going to Jacksonville as a coach without Trevor Lawrence in the equation or somebody like him. That's yeah. a fair point. Well, let's talk about priors on the other side of the other game that was played, which is at some point people have to say you talk about institutional stability. OK, well, <laughs> Notre Dame has institutional stability and they're not competitive in these games. And so at some point, the committee has got to say, you know what, they've played in, I think, seven of these games. The closest game has been 14 points. You know, at some point, someone has to say Notre Dame, unless they beat a top three or four teams. Hold on, Eric, Eric, they covered that was they a backdoor cover. Come on, sh- sh- you watch the game, Kay. They didn't cover. They well, covered. They 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 covered. First of all, they covered a nineteen and a half point spread by right. seventeen, right. and that that's was a right. garbage touchdown at the end of the game. And you know as well as I do, <laughs> Alabama played eighty percent. Yeah, it, it was it was not a competitive game. Like at no that's point fair. did I say there's I, any I, chance at all that Alabama loses this game. I agree. I agree broadly but i do think that alabama is significantly no i mean it may be unfair that that may not be being competitive for an entire game against alabama may not be the line we want to draw for notre dame that seems yeah yeah right exactly so my favorite my favorite playoff whinge this year i think people are missing the big story here i think it's right in front of our eyes and we're missing it never before in the whatever it's been seven years of the new playoff system have has the consensus be well we don't need four teams this year we could just have two 
you know, instead of expanding, let's consider contracting because everybody agrees it's Alabama and Clemson. That was an active narrative yeah. going into this weekend. And what did, what happened? Lo and behold, it wouldn't have been the right two. Yeah. And that is the argument for not only four, but I think that's the argument for having an even, an even expanded bracket. We're too sure we know who the right two teams are. I mean, OU would make noise in this year's playoffs. Absolutely. They would make noise. They might well make it into the final this year. And that's not because they were great all year, but it was because they find their stride late in the season and they're I playing as well. Seen Texas A&M and Cincinnati in those games too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, no, Cincinnati I gave Georgia all they could handle for whatever it was, you know, 55, I watched that entire game. And I thought actually Cincinnati was the better team. Yeah. Yeah. They let them hang around. They let them hang around. They let them hang around. But so I just want to make sure that we don't miss that point. People were saying with great conviction, ah, let's just let had two, two teams this year. Let's yeah. just play two teams this year. And I love that because it was such a demonstration that we're too sure we know what's right. Uh, can I add one thing? Because I, I, I went and did, I have this great database, which I have yet to, to see the public light of day, but it's very useful. Um, Notre Dame is a notch below our star teams in the college football in terms of their recruiting in one dimension in particular. They don't get any of the best players, high school yeah. best players, not even yeah. close. Um, and they get nobody. So they have a, a truncated distribution compared to, so the way I measure it, I measure recruit by the probability of them getting drafted. And Alabama and Ohio State have tons of, of college, high school recruits that predict to get drafted with more than 50% probability, with this, which is astronomical. Nobody on the Notre Dame team is above 50%, and no one's even really above 25%, and they hover around 10% as, yeah. the, as the forecast, which is not that far from, you know, typical. Um, yeah. So I mean, they're more they famous for their walk-on players like Rudy, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, so, so it may be a great program, but they don't get the top recruits. Well, it's 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 it ha- it's different now than it used to be. They used to have an advantage because they were national recruiters. Our sense, mm-hmm. again, going to Audi, your data and the way we've yep. talked about it, our sense is that the big players are all national recruiters now. It's not it's not something that is that unique. Notre Dame is famously supposed supposedly, but famously hampered by the academic requirements and and the curriculum requirements more generally at the school. Right. Um, and maybe there's a geographic thing. I mean, how appealing is going to South Bend to play football in the cold when you? Or I often think of the Florida. geographics more in terms of like having a regional base that you are drawing yeah. from. I mean, Alabama is always going to be a powerhouse because people in Alabama really love football and they want to play for Alabama specifically, right? No, it's very, it's it's a very good point. And historically, recruiting college recruiting has been geography has been destiny, and those schools who happen to be in places that were rich with candidates just did better it, it our hypothesis that Adi and i have is that geography is less destiny than it used to be but yeah. it's still hugely influential and of course the those in the deep south have an advantage because they're just more candidates down there I, I again a telecast stat that came out highest per capita um production of nfl players is miami so south, south florida it, it hits the hits the pegs of meter there but georgia alabama those are rich places I just want to bring up one other team. You know, we've been talking about, and to link college with the pros, we've been talking about the Jets and maybe they'll draft fields, whatever. Suppose they don't. Well, you have a very interesting team at number three. The Dolphins just drafted Tua. Maybe he's not the guy. Matter of fact, there's a lot of evidence maybe that says he's not. Do they draft fields? What? There's nothing that stops the Dolphins from from drafting him. We just talked about this last week. Should you draft two quarterbacks in a row? You know, maybe so... 
maybe have a competition between two and fields. See who's the better quarterback. Put him out there. Yeah, I like this argument a lot. The, the PFF guys were on about it. And then we had Eric on, Eric Eager. And um, there's a lot to be said for continuing to invest in quarterbacks until you know you got your guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard to find those guys. As we talked about, you know, it's like, it's just so disproportionately influential, the quality of your quarterback. It, it deserves disproportional investment of resources. And it'll be fascinating. It's always fascinating to see what teams do with the quarterbacks in the draft. I mean, as soon as we finish the season, we're going to roll right into draft season. Heck, the NFL is already advertising the draft on their telecast. But this year, I mean, with the quarterback class that's coming up and with decisions by teams like Miami who have Tua on their roster, with Darnold in play, I mean, there's, it's, just, it's just a fun – I mean, it's my favorite reality TV. It's just basically a reality TV show is all it is, but it happens to be a, a sports-based one. All right, guys, in the last minute or so that we have here, did you see the paper by Luke Benz and Michael Lopez on home field advantage? We've been wondering – what we could learn from the coronavirus world about home field advantage. Well, those guys finally look at European soccer, right? We have to do it quickly, but what was the finding from Lopez? Well, they, they looked at 17 different leagues. It was a great data collection. They essentially estimated home field advantage. And in soccer, you get another piece, which is useful, which is yellow cards. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the, one of the uh, hypotheses has been that home field advantage protects you from getting uh, penalties. Um, so what they did notice is there's great shift towards the zero uh, home field advantage, but it's still there and it's still pretty persistent. So, that, so, so like from what to what, Adi? So that's the thing you're talking soccer here. So they're measured in points, um, which is almost uninterpretable to me. Some small fraction of points. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, therefore, <laughs> win. Therefore, win probability. Therefore, win. But they didn't convert that into win probability. So I know, for example, by the way, NFL this year basically ran fifty-fifty almost on the dot. Um, that's a number you probably know. I think it's like we, there was one more home win than 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 uh, away win this year. Adi, we, we, uh, Rufus and I did the thing that you've done before, which was use the betting market to infer the market's power rankings. Yeah. You throw a decay curve on there to weigh the more recent weeks more, and you throw a home field advantage on there. Mm-hmm. And we found that by we, I mean Rufus, we, we I helped spec it, but Rufus read these <laughs> things. Rufus' report was that at the end of the year, the, 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 the market fitting number for home field advantage in the NFL this year was something like 0.62. Yeah, I mean, it was really. It, I mean, normally in a normal year, it'd be like two and a half or something like that. And, yeah. What do you guys okay. feel about non-stationarity in that, though? I mean, one of the reasons Green Bay and New England why they want the buy every year is people have to come play up there. Yeah, that's so. Rufus has done research in the past that showed that the that the late season advantage goes up, and that it's especially true for northern teams. So don't give up on that Green Bay home field advantage yet. All right, guys, great fun. We've got playoffs in front of us in the NFL and a college championship between now and our next show. That has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, our interview segment. I'm joined by Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. Happily, our focus for the next half hour will be Ben Baldwin. Ben, longtime football analyst, really on the frontier, one of the highest profile football analysts out there. And a great follow, whether you're on Twitter or reading The Athletic or any number of the pieces that Ben gets up in various places. Um, He always has something interesting to say. And so we're glad that you're able to join us this afternoon, Ben. How are you? 
Uh, good. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I thought the discussion last week with Eric was awesome. So hopefully we'll um, partially live up to that at least. <laughs> and just so everyone knows that he means Eric Eager of Pro Football Focus. That's I mean, right. Eric Bradlow some of the time, but that's who the Eric That's right. No, we welcome your reviews, Ben. If you have, if you want individualized feedback for the host, that's, that's, that's fine as well. Ben, uh, tell us first where, where you're, where you're dialing in from today and where you're holed up during the pandemic. Yeah. So I'm in um, a basement in Arlington, Virginia, which is where I've been uh, since basically March. Um, my, my office is usually in uh, DC and Georgetown, but we haven't been going into work for a very long time. So yeah. uh, here I am. It's um, a little crazy that you're in Northern Virginia because you are, I don't know, one of three, four, five most prominent football analysts out there, I would say. And Brian Burke is another. He's also in Northern Virginia. You guys have coffee on a regular basis. How's that going? I So we we are both in Northern Virginia, but the first time I ever met him or interacted with him was in Indianapolis um, at Big Data oh, really? Bowl at the Combine. So I we oh, wow. both live here, and the only time I've ever seen him was uh, very far away from here. You guys are too computer centric, man. You got to get away from your computers, get away from your keyboards. Go be well, social. Practicing social distancing. So. Well, that's <laughs> right now. That's what we got to do. Ben, um, look, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about your stuff. And as I said, you 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 write for the Athletic on a regular basis, and you tweet regularly at um, at Ben B Baldwin. Ben B Baldwin. Also, your your name up there is the Computer Cowboy. Where's Computer Cowboy come from? Uh, so there, that was part of a big kerfluffle before the season where all the quote unquote nerds thought the Seahawks should be passing the ball more because they had a good quarterback and they weren't letting him do that. And there, I got this response to one of my tweets saying that the computer Cowboys are going to drive Russell Wilson out of town or something like that. And I, I just <laughs> thought it was a great, uh, it, it just went together so well. And I kind of adopted that for the, the 2020 season. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, t- tell us before we dive into your work. Tell us a little bit about where you got here. How did a econ PhD on the West Coast turn into computer cowboy, Northern Virginia Twitter master of the football analytics universe? Yeah, so I uh, I finished my PhD, started working, am still working uh, full time as um, someone who does uh, policy research, which is how I ended up in DC, and then. Uh, in my free time, as a lot of us do, and a lot of listeners do, I'm sure, um, watch football and talk about football and eventually just started writing about what I thought was interesting. And um, it, it's less so the case now, but at least when I started like four or five years ago, if you, if you were able to um, get data and analyze it and tell some sort of a story and contribute to our understanding of football, like there just wasn't that much happening. And that was like kind of when Josh Hermsmeyer was getting started and Eric here, like all these people who are um, longtime guests on the show, like we all kind of started doing this stuff at the same time. And I, I think it was yeah. easy to stand out then just because there wasn't a lot of that now. And, and what's great about following football now is there is so much more of that out there now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, so, so my story is um, the athletic was launching in Seattle and asked if I wanted to contribute um, and, and this was in 2018. So I've been doing that um, since then, which is like basically the, the perfect gig because when I want to write something, I can write something, but there's no like expectations or pressure or anything because I'm just a contributor. You're just a contributor. You said launching in Seattle. So t- tell us how the works because Athletic on the one hand is a national organization, but on the other hand, they've got all these local writers. Is that what you mean? Were you tabbed yep. as the as the NFL guy in Seattle? Is that how it went? Or um, so there, there is like a full 
a full-time beat writer who covers the Seahawks, uh, Michael Sean Dugar, uh, who's awesome. Um, but when um, how they do launch things is they say, we're going to go into the city and launch the site in this city. So when, when the Seattle site was launching, they said, we need people to cover uh, the Mariners and the Seahawks and on and on. And one of, one of the people that they approached about this was me, um, which I thought great because that the Seahawks were the team I was interested in. Let me, let me just say that, that um, it's a, it's always a pleasure. Well, it's almost always a pleasure to read these pieces, not just yours, but others from the athletic because the, format is so different and you'll be cruising along and you'll be, you, you know, we're habituated to a certain length column and then you guys get to just keep on going and you're like twice the length of a normal column and it allows you to go into more detail, which most of the time is fantastic. And so, I, you know, you, you're not being a traditional journalist. You might not feel like you've been freed from some kind of shackles, but as the reader, it's a very different experience to read your stuff up there. You're just deeper. And I think that's a real credit to the athletic. I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. Um, I'm, I'm biased as well, but I, yeah, we can write as long as we want. And the format is also nice because there's no pressure to put in videos or advertisements or anything. So you're, it's really just right. the content is the focus, um, which I appreciate. Right. I, I mean, there's a lot of variance among sports organizations and teams and stuff like that, as far as how kind of analytics focused, you know, their kind of operation is. Do you kind of feel like, you know, like the regional coverage of different cities, is there also kind of a variation in that? Like are certain like kind of like, you know, kind of cities covered in with, with more kind of like analytical focus based on what's going on with the teams there or, or is it yeah, pretty like, uniform it, across the whole country? No, it can't be uniform. There's yeah. only four guys that can do what Ben does and the Seahawks got him. I mean, well, yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, you know, to a certain extent, them, high, you know, kind of, you know, working with you shows a certain kind of focus to that region already. So how much, yeah, how much does that vary, I guess, across like from different areas? So I think there is, there's absolutely a lot of variance and not just with the athletic, but in terms of how different teams are covered. And so like the Eagles are a great example where the Eagles were at the forefront of all this like fourth down stuff and hiring people to like do this kind of work. And if you were covering the team, then you have to be like at least somewhat familiar with that. And um, on behalf of uh, Philadelphia fans, I, I think they're a, a smart and engaged fan base. So like there's definitely an appetite for having that kind of thing where for some other teams, like they're very into like the traditionalist, we're going to um, treat everything the coaches say as gospel and like the, the coverage is very different. So yeah, especially in the NFL where we're kind of like just growing into what it means to start using data in a comprehensive way, then there, there's definitely a lot of variation across teams, I think. One of the things that suggests possibly is that there are 26, 27 open spots out there for someone to dive in and advance analytics. You can kind of get a foothold on a geographic basis. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think to, that's I think that's right, depending on the, the fan the appetite fan for, for yeah. that, yeah. Well, look, we've been going on. We've been rattling on for seven years. We're not sure what kind of appetite <laughs> they have for us. Sirius XM still has us. Eric. Okay, so, Ben, do – is the way it could work, like, like I just read your Twitter feed and I saw something very interesting on it about um, what I consider one of the greatest seasons in the history of a running back, Derrick Henry. And you did an interesting comparison to him between what I would consider one of the most mediocre seasons in the history of the NFL, Ryan Tannehill. Yet the expected points added for Tannehill dwarfs those for Derrick Henry, at least on a per play type of basis. And so when, you know, I don't know, when the Tennessee Titans read this, which I hope they are, 
So like, do they call you up and say, you know, either, well, there's two reactions. One could be, you're absolutely wrong. Derrick Henry is so far above. We need eight Derrick Henrys. Or do they say, we need you as part of the home team? Yeah, it, the reactions to the Derrick Henry thing are, like, there's basically two camps that are very far apart. And one is that everything the Titans do on offense is only because of Derrick Henry's presence on the field. And like, no matter how much evidence you throw that that's probably not the case, like, people like going back to the traditionalists who follow and cover the sport, like they're the running back is the central figure and everything else is built on that. So if you say that like the plays involving Derrick Henry have been much less productive in terms of increasing the Titans chances to, to score relative to Ryan Tannehill, then like people just have a really hard time uh, accepting that, even though like there, there's, there's a million different angles that you can show that it's, it's really what happens in the passing game is primarily what determines who wins and loses in the NFL. And I, I think we're making some, some uh, headway in that, but there, it's still definitely a work in progress. Can you elaborate that just a little bit since you've been doing some work there and you know, the somewhat sophisticated critic might say, Hey, can you really parse those two things? Because they, they have to be dependent in some way, or one would think that they're probably dependent. There's so many dependencies on the football field. It must it not be the case that Tannehill benefits from all the attention that a Derrick Henry brings. Um, so, so when you address that kind of criticism, what do you say? What's what's the best argument in in refutation of that criticism? Yeah, so I I fully agree that football is hard just because of all the interconnectedness, and it's it's just really hard to get at with eleven or even twenty two players on the field, like who is exactly affecting what and how defenses react and everything. And really, the way that I've try to approach this at least with the Derrick Henry thing is generating hypotheses and seeing if there's anything behind it so um so for one we can look at how the Titans offense has been with Derrick Henry on the field versus off the field and we don't at least this season we don't see a big difference now there's a lot of issues with on-off statistics in the NFL just because it's so situational and why is a player on the sideline uh is it in garbage time or they have certain types right. of plays they want to run, like all these different ben, Could, could but, an argument for that, maybe this to Cade's point, like what's the counterfactual? So I assume they ran a bunch <laughs> of running plays that weren't with Derrick Henry, right? I mean, he doesn't carry the ball all their running plays. I mean, it only seems right. like it, but he doesn't do them all. So would that be another way? Like maybe this is part of the million ways you could show like, well, even if it's a different running back in there, it's not that much added. If it's, you know, if it's on this situation, it's not that much added. Is, is that how you think about it to, relating to Cade's question? Yeah, so that that's definitely another approach, and um, this is something that we actually do have some information on. Um, the The big data bowl last year was, was basically trying to predict um, the results of running plays based on uh, offensive and def- defensive player positioning at the snap, and um, Next Gen Stats, which is part of the NFL, started tracking like which players have exceeded their expected yards and. I haven't looked at at it recently, but my memory is that Derrick Henry has actually performed pretty well in that. So, mm-hmm. um, so if, if you wanted to try to tell me that Derrick Henry has performed better than the average running back, um, then I, I think that is probably reasonable. And I think most people would probably say that the, the question is how much impact it actually has on Tannehill, because it, it's really their passing offense that has been um, what has been driving the overall offense. Their, their passing offense has been very, very good for two uh, seasons in a row. And if, if they're going to have any shot in the playoffs, then it's probably the passing offense that will uh, take them there, I would think. Can, can, we, can we get any traction by who's, a, who's a, comp, a quarterback who's most comparable to Tannehill? I know that's 
tough because he's relatively unusual, but I'd want to know something like the different situations that Tannehill faces because he's got Derrick Henry in the backfield versus the situations other quarterbacks face. And so it's not so much what he does with the situation. I understand he, he may be exploiting situations very well. It's that he might have different situations because of other players on the field. To what extent have we pushed on that question and pushed on that frontier? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I um, can't really do it with public data, but um, people like someone at PFF could look at whether Tannehill is throwing passes against um, heavier boxes and, and fewer defensive backs in the backfield and expecting a pass and things like that. Um, that's unfortunately this, like this gets to the, the very limits of what we can do as yeah. quote unquote outsiders and not having access yeah. to tracking data. And, and well, my, that my reminds question. me real quickly, Shane, that reminds me of, um, you know, this piece that Hermsmeyer did maybe a year ago on play action. Yep. And he was yep. looking at, mo- he was using, you know, NGS, to see the impact on linebackers. And if I remember correctly, one of his big deals there was, look, even in the fourth quarter, these linebackers are still being misdirected essentially by play action. So here's a little version of the question I'm just asking. Could it be that the defense is more reactive to play action when you've got Derrick Henry in the backfield than when you've got some other quarterback in the backfield? So NGS could answer that immediately. And if it is the case, then it, then it, then it advantages Tannehill a little bit. Now, look, I, I don't know if this is true, and I'm just kind of pushing one line of thinking because, yep. in general, this is a real hard thing to parse. And mostly, we in football, we haven't. We're going to eventually parse it, but mostly, we haven't been able to parse those things yet. Yeah, and I mean, I guess my my kind of direction on that same sort of question would be like, what what non next gen, what old gen stat is kind of the most sort of highly associated with this? Con- you know, I mean, you're you're talking about. I mean, the next gen stats tell you exactly kind of how much success. Henry has against different schemes and stuff like that. And like how, how much kind of extra he gets you on a typical running play over expectation. You know, I I've heard that he's also very good at things like yards after contact, which is, you know, the old gen stat version of this, I guess. And to what extent, to what extent is old, you know, kind of just yards after contact what he does and how much does an old gen stat like that correlate with kind of offensive efficiency in general? So that I feel like that's as, as kind of the outsiders before we kind of have access to the next gen stats, one endeavor would be kind of trying to figure out which of these old, older gen stats actually sort of captures at least some part of what we're trying to measure. Well, I do know yeah. who has the highest in the NFL. Cause I just saw the stat recently and you could never guess it's the, famous running back of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Ronald Jones, apparently averages the largest number of yards after After contact or yards beyond the line or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, again, again, to a certain extent, I mean, that would also, I mean, I'm not sure it actually is going to be the right comparison set, but you, you know, we asked sort of like, what's the right kind of comparable quarterback to Tannehill you know, if you, I mean, at the minimum, you could kind of match them, match up the quarterback that has the running back that looks the most like Derek Henry, at least in this aspect. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, yeah, again, Tom right. Brady is the matched pair for Ryan Tanhill. There's probably some problems with that specifically, but. Right. So we're talking to Ben Baldwin, longtime football analyst. He writes with The Athletic. He tweets as at Ben B. Baldwin, Ben B. Baldwin. Also, the computer cowboy is his name up there, at least for the 2020 football season. Ben, how is your work informed by your econ training? What kind of econ training did you do? What kind of policy analysis are you doing in DC? Um, so it, it's education policy is like the, the high level stuff. 
um, and just like trying to think it, it, it's a big picture question, but like, how do we make schools better? How do we better serve students? Um, things yep. like that. So I think of that enterprise as being highly, highly empirical and just a, and bunches of interesting studies. Is that the nature of the work? Yeah. So the, the kind of how I got into NFL stuff was um, like you, you have this quote unquote large data set and you're trying to make some sense of it. And like, if you have all those tools that you've developed um, doing something, then it, it's not a hard transition to you kind of get NFL play-by-play data and start uh, playing around with that. Right. So Ben, um, do in the ed policy world, um, how much availability is there of randomized experiments or most of the stuff that you're dealing with is observational data where let's say just for all the listeners, schools choose to implement some policy or not. And so now you either have to deal with what we call instrumental variables or a self-selection model. So how much of your world is spent working with school districts or et cetera, your group trying to get randomized experiments run and how much of it is observational data? Um, So there's definitely both um, and there's advantages and disadvantages. We're going very far off uh, football now, but but, um, to both. (laughs) It also relates to how you would, so maybe to tie it to Wharton Moneyball here, um, we don't run experiments most of the time in the data that we're trying to do inference for in sports. And so the choice of play that someone runs, they have a knowledge and belief about what's going to be most effective. So I'm just interested in how, uh, what kind of data you see there and also how it influences your NFL. And and, and, and again, kind of circling back to the theme we had prior, prior to this is, you know, trying to isolate relationships in the context of a lot of interactions and, 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 and kind of trying to design evaluations matching however you want to do it to do that i think that's a that's a kind it seems to be kind of a common theme across both your sports and kind of you know educational work yeah Yeah, for sure and i think it's if anything it's harder in football because a lot of times in policy you have like some intervention and it's, it's very easy to see what the intervention is and exactly when it happens so let's say for example there's there's a school level treatment and like half of the districts in an, or half of the schools in the district are getting some treatment and they're not randomly assigned, but you at least know something about the schools and you can look at what happens over time to schools that receive this treatment and schools that didn't receive this treatment. And it's all like pretty well defined because in order to implement the treatment, like the teachers and administrators have to know about it and receive training or whatever. And like, you know, exactly what happened, you know, what outcomes the treatment was designed to um, affect because the policy was put in place for some reason, and then you're measuring these outcomes. With, I, I think, I'm not saying it's impossible, of course, but I think with football, at sometimes it's harder because, in a sense, you don't know what you don't know. Like, why why are certain players on the field in some situations? Right. Um, like all all these different kinds of things that are um, you you can't really know for sure. So you're you're trying to make the best comparisons we can. Like going back to that Tannehill conversation, like what might be a good comparison for him. Um, but there's, there's still like just a lot that we don't know at the same time. Right. And, and there's usually like multiple kind of infer- quote unquote interventions happening simultaneously. Like when a team overhauls its offense, it's often overhauling multiple parts at the same time. So when you sort of see the outcome of that, and maybe you actually can even quantify the improvement in an offense, you're not quite sure what is, kind of you know which which of the moving parts that you intervened on was actually sort of the the driving most of that improvement 
Yeah, and, and there's other things going on like um, like your opponent's faced. So for example, if you can't like you can't look at what happened to this team when uh, player X got injured. If like there's a very different set of opponents they played afterwards versus before, and there, there's just all these different possible confounds that you just have to be very careful about making strong conclusions. Well, that doesn't pay. Not making strong <laughs> conclusions doesn't pay. You don't get to be a computer cowboy on Twitter by not making strong conclusions. But that is, I mean, we, we, we all probably ought to be reminded on a regular basis how much we don't know. And I'm sure that we hold as gospel things now that 10 years from now will be undermined. And so we just need to continually remind ourselves that despite what we think we know right now, there's still so much that we don't know. But one thing that we're pretty sure about and have been for a while is this fourth down policy. I mean, David Romer wrote the first of the football analytics um, papers in 2003. I mean, he's kind of, I say the first, it was one of the first kind of serious academic pieces. And he wrote a serious, you know, academic model, economic model for, for fourth down decisions. You've just launched a new fourth down bot. So yes. Brian Burke had one years ago and even the New York times was, 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 was running that thing. It became a big hit in Buffalo. And now five <laughs> years later, Buffalo is a, a model franchise for this stuff. Why did the world need a new fourth down bot? And why is your fourth down bot any better than somebody else's? Yeah. So the, the, the first question uh, was the, the one I needed to answer myself before doing anything. And the, what I tell myself is that I wanted one where the entire code and methodology were open to the public. Um, mm -hmm. So like I have a GitHub repository where everybody can see the entire code base that mm -hmm. not only does the model, but the bot and like every single thing that goes into it, um, people can see. So uh, I think one of the disadvantages of having all these models around like ESPN has their model, PFF has their model, there's the old New York Times bot, like all these different models tell you different recommendations sometimes, but the methodology for the models isn't public. So there's no yeah. real way to compare Like, why does your model tell us this? So, um, so one thing I wanted to do was say here, here is how to, here's how I constructed a model and you can see every decision that went into it. Yep. Maybe every decision is not great, but at the very least you can actually see the model. Um, and that's, that's very good. important. I'll just sort of mention like, I mean, you know, war, what wins above replacement is of course, like one of the main statistics that we use in baseball now, but it is a, a, a continuing source of frustration in the community that there's actually three different wars out there. And none of, you know, you know, they're not particularly open source or anything like that. So you don't exactly know how each of these values is being calculated. Um, to answer the second question, what makes it better than the others? So one answer is that this is hard to answer because the methodologies for a lot of the other ones aren't public. Yeah, right. um, But a, um, a different partial answer is that some of, some of the models, uh, so for example, the old New York Times one, they, they didn't really think about um, play outcomes in a distribution. So for example, if, if a team go for it, go, goes for it, then they assume that there's some probability where they fail and gain exactly zero yards. And there's basically one minus P that they gain exactly the yards to gain. And okay. that's not really how the world works. If you go for it, you might gain a lot more yards than the yards to gain. And yeah. I think for that example, the New York Times bot in particular was a little bit too conservative on, on fourth downs because it underestimated um, the, the benefit to the team of actually converting. Okay. 
So uh, you've, you can take these models now and you can look at how teams have been doing over a long period of time. And what do you learn about the NFL when you, when you do that? Yeah, so there, there's kind of a, a few high-level patterns that I think are interesting. Um, one is that when the bot has said to kick, whether that's a punt or a field goal, NFL coaches virtually almost always kick. Like they, they never use their quote-unquote gut to uh, override a decision to be more aggressive. But okay. on the other hand, not even when, Doug Peterson. <laughs> so that so that's actually interesting because my bot did think that he should have kicked a field goal there, um, <laughs> which is not what the NBC broadcast thought. So that that's an interesting example of the um, the models showing Just different to be things. Clear, I think the score, if I remember correctly, was seventeen fourteen yeah. somewhere fairly late-ish in the game. Yeah, it would have tied the game. Right. Yeah, I think it was in the third quarter because it was still when Hertz was in right and mm-hmm. then yeah uh, yeah That's it might have been his last drive in actually it was no, probably was at that point in. that I realized maybe they don't actually want to win this game <laughs> yeah maybe they didn't uh, let's, oh so another so coaches kick when they should kick when they should go for it they sometimes go for it but often do not go for it um, I, I doubt this will be surprising to you or any of the listeners here um but that has, over time, uh, they, they become much more likely to go for it when the bot slash model says to go for it. Um, even over the last five years or so, um, we've, we've seen a dramatic rise in kind of overall mm-hmm. aggressiveness league-wide, and that really accelerated after the, the 2017 Eagles um, season last year. And then finally, um, as Eric Eager said last year, or last week on the show, the, the Buffalo Bills are the, the model organization for doing everything correctly, and they, they've just been awesome at this for the last three seasons. Do you have much insight into why some organizations are better at this and others aren't? I mean, that's a pretty complicated thing to be good at, really. It's not just like the head coach down there who happens to have a good intuition for these things. It requires something more structural and systematic than that, no? Yeah, so the actually getting the model recommendations is not the hard part. It's really getting buy-in from the top going down to the coach and saying like, if we're in these situations, then the, what is best for us is to follow these recommendations. Um, Not saying the model's perfect, but it's probably better than what coaches have been doing in the past. And we have seen teams benefit by following this, but it it just seems like most teams are not quite ready to go the Buffalo, Baltimore, Philadelphia route in like really adhering to what the model should. And something presumably even a sophisticated bot is not building in, which might kind of influence which teams are successful is the actual kind of personnel that are executing these plays. Right. I mean, I think it's Buffalo also has like a very kind of mobile quarterback that I think makes, you know, sort of fourth down plays a lot more, you know, at least increases the variation that you can have in, in fourth down plays and stuff like that. So I kind of, I think that would be the kind of next gen level of this is actually trying to kind of even build in sort of, you know, specific kind of personnel into these kind of calculations. Yeah. So one thing that is in the model is the, uh, the implied team total from the Vegas line. So the model quote unquote knows that it, if Vegas expects you to score a lot of points in the game, then you probably have a good offense and you probably wow. have a high conversion mm-hmm. probability. But what it doesn't know is, for example, uh, which which teams have a mobile quarterback, which probably increases your conversion rates on fourth and short, um, and how how likely you are to run or pass, uh, things like that. I, I think could definitely provide uh, an improvement on it and and 
presumably teens themselves are adding this into the model because they could. Um, so um, yeah, this is this is kind of a, a first cut at it with like this blunt offensive team strength um, inclusion. But yeah, there's there's definitely room to make it better. Ben, here in the last couple of minutes, can you tell us anything about what you're thinking about now? Whether you'll we'll see an article in the next week or month, or whether it's just a long-term aspiration. What are some of the questions you think are interesting and hard, and that you're noodling on in football analytics right now? Yeah. So, uh, in terms of articles, I I'm working on a piece on who should be the most valuable player this season, uh, which I think will come out sometime this week. Um, uh, I. I, I'm guessing. I thought this, you wrote a this, bunch. At least you've tweeted. Haven't you tweeted a bunch about this? That you know, like if it's not Aaron Rodgers, like there's something wrong. Yeah. So I, I, I. So the, the betting markets, <laughs> the the betting markets have him as an overwhelming favorite, and basically the article is saying that I I think they have it right, and he would be the right uh, choice for this. Um, they they've had the best offense all season. Yeah, Mahomes is like if there was a draft and they were all the same age and had the same salary, I think Mahomes would probably be the first overall pick, but just in terms of the 2020 season alone and how good he and the Packers offense has been, I, I think he's the, the pick for MVP this year. How, how good would a player have to, how good does a non quarterback player have to be to get MVP in this day and age? Do you think it's, do you think it's basically something where they should just, split up the awards and the quarterback and non-quarterback to give, or, or do you think they're that non-quarterbacks could still conceivably win the MVP? Well, let's take the hypothetical we were talking about. Let's say Derek Henry had broken one more run and break Eric <laughs> Dickerson's record and ended up with, instead of whatever, 2025 or whatever number he ended up with the fifth highest ever. He ended up with number one. Is he the MVP? No, I don't. I don't think there's any way just because of how the sport is constructed for any non-quarterback to win the award. And, and one way to think about it is um, PFF has their wins apart replacement measure. And I, I think the top, like maybe 15 or 20 players are all quarterbacks. So there's like, just because of how important throwing the ball is in the NFL under the current rules and current system and just how the game is set up now, I, I think that the, the MVP has to be a quarterback. And if we wanted to recognize some other like most outstanding player or something like that and wanted to exclude quarterbacks, then I, I think that would be a, a reasonable way to recognize non-quarterbacks because those players are just never going to be MVPs. It's like a best supporting actor award. We need the best actor <laughs> goes into the quarterback. We need the yeah. best supporting. Everyone else has supported the quarterback. I think that's fair to say. Look, before we go, um, moving from player level to team level, Eric wants to know whether your charts mean that Tampa Bay is going to win the Super Bowl. I think, I think that's essentially what it comes out to. You put out these beautiful charts that put offensive uh, expected points added per play on one axis and defensive expected points added per play, which are good little summary statistics. So you can see at a glance where every team in the NFL sits and you do this one extra thing. That's just, it's a, it's a, such a subtlety that I love is that you throw these, you throw these curve, these lines on there, kind of ISO curves on there that, that make it real easy to tier all the different teams. And what you're showing right now after week 17 is that the Bucks really kind of in the top of the tier right behind the Packers and they're right perfectly balanced offense and defense. And Eric thinks this means they're going to win the Super Bowl. Do you agree? Um, I, uh, their road is hard just because they don't have um, the buy um, and there's no, basically no home field advantage in the NFL this year. So I don't think um, the Packers uh, home field advantage means a whole lot other than if the Bucks and Pam, uh, Packers do play in the second round, then the, the Packers would have an extra week of rest. And I, I think the Packers are a better team, even though 
uh, Tampa Bay beat them pretty handily earlier this year. So I, I would say the the Packers are easily the, the most likely team to make it out of the conference in part because they, they have, they're the only team with the bye week in that. If you're just if right. you're multiplying probabilities together and have to win games, then they, sure. they just have such an easier road there. Okay, else. but we can't let you go without telling us something we don't know, Ben. Come on, we know about the bye. <laughs> Tell us about some team that you think, from crunching these numbers, your perspective, some team you think might have a little bit more of an edge than people will give it credit for, or if you were going to buy at market prices, who that team might be. So I I think the I'm deciding between the Ravens and the Bills here, and I'll I'll just say the Ravens because I I think people kind of. Um, gave them up for dead partway through the season um, when their offense was struggling, their whole team got COVID. And since then they've been uh, very good. And maybe even looking like uh, last year's team, the caveat is that they have just been killing a bunch of bad teams and um, it'll, we'll, we'll see how they fare once they actually start playing against playoff teams. And they, they have uh, a rematch against the Titans for the third time in uh, calendar year, basically, and, and haven't beat them, beaten them yet. So if they get past the Titans, then, um, that they will have my attention. All right. Well, listen, Ben, thanks for taking the time to be with us. We love visiting with you. We love reading your work. We wish you the best with it going forward. Yeah. Thanks for having me. The, sh- the show's awesome and uh, happy to be on. Thanks, man. Ben Baldwin. You can see him on Twitter uh, at Ben B Baldwin or computer cowboy is his handle this season. Computer cowboy, Ben Baldwin. You can also read him on the athletic fantastic website for sports journalism. And Ben is a, a, a contributor there. That has been another two hours of sports analytics here at Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM. We do it every week for Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. This has been Cade Massey. Big thanks to Matty D, the boss man, Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, and all you listeners for joining us. Come back and join us again next week between now and then. Enjoy your sports. <laughs>